This is Duke University. I have the distinct honor tonight of introducing our 2008 Leadership in Social Entrepreneurship Award winner, David Bornstein. Uh, it's a special treat for me because uh, I've admired David's work for well over a decade. Um, and for the last few years, I've counted him among my close friends in this field. David uh, is, is an advisor and in many ways probably even a mentor uh, to me. It's uh, terrific. I think uh, I've learned a tremendous amount from him and am so delighted that we uh, all have a chance to learn from him tonight. Um, first encountered David's work, uh, it was probably 1995, when he wrote an article in the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, the article was entitled, The Barefoot Bank with Cheek. This was an article about Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. Many of you will know about Grameen and microfinance. Uh, Muhammad Yunus got the 2006 Nobel uh, uh, Peace Prize. We should tell you he also got the 2004 Leadership and Social Entrepreneurship Award. Right here at Fuqua, we beat the Nobel Committee by two years uh, in giving him that award. Well, David's article was a wonderful description of the development and growth of Grameen Bank and Yunus's efforts in Bangladesh. Um, it's so powerful as an example that to this day, if I'm asked to give a, a, a short class or session on social entrepreneurship, I always assign David's article as advanced reading for that uh, discussion because Eunice's work in Bangladesh is a perfect example of social entrepreneurship and David's article brings it to life in, in, a, in a very uh, real way and I think it's powerful. Well, he followed that article with a book, uh, his first book called The Price of a Dream, it's the book on the far end there, recently reissued by Oxford for 19 95, so I can encourage you to look for it at your local bookstores. It's a great book um, if you really want to understand how Grameen developed and grew. Now, Eunice has written his own books, but it's different when you have a journalist who comes in as an outsider, looks at it, interviews people, and tells the story, and, and this is a very uh, rich and detailed telling. Uh, it's an award-winning uh, book, um, got a second prize uh, from the Harry Chapin Media awards the year that it came out. Um, it was a finalist for the Helen Bernstein uh, Book of the Year uh, New York Public Library uh, uh, Awards for Excellence in Journalism. I think it was selected as one of the best business books of the year in San Francisco Chronicle. So made quite a dent. And if David had stopped there, he would have already made a major contribution to the field of social entrepreneurship. But he didn't stop there. He started on another book at that point. Um, focusing on social entrepreneurs around the world. Um, much of it uh, working with Ashoka. Uh, many of you may know Ashoka is an organization that supports social entrepreneurs around the world, founded by Bill Drayton, so the, David's second book, which you'll see here, How to Change the World, Social Entrepreneurs and the Power of New Ideas, um, came out in 2004 um, and brought the concept of social entrepreneurship to a much wider audience. There were many of us working in the field at the time, but it was still a pretty close-knit little group. A lot of people hadn't heard the concept. Um, when David's book came out, mainstream media picked it up. There was an article in the New York Times pretty quickly uh, after the book came out on social entrepreneurship. 
Lots of other publications picked it up. Various heads of state endorsed it and recommended it to their cabinets or made it the book of the year. I don't know how many, it's probably three or four or five. Former heads of state have endorsed it. Bill Clinton in his book on giving highly recommends David's, uh, David's book. Um, uh, Nelson Mandela has a nice quote on it. So uh, this is a book that's gotten the attention of many world leaders and brought social entrepreneurship to a much wider audience. Those of us in the field are extremely grateful for that. And it does it in a way that's, that's very thoughtful, insightful. Not only does it tell stories, draws lessons out from those stories. And I've seen David evolve over uh, this past four or five years from the leading journalist in the field to a thought leader in the field. He's somebody now who uh, people look to for advice and guidance as this field um, moves forward. And I know I certainly do, and many of my colleagues in this, uh, in this field of study do. So um, if you will join me in welcoming uh, David Bornstein, I'd like to bring him up here, and I know you want to hear from him more than you want to hear from me. So David, welcome. Thank you, Greg. You beat me. I was going to say that you mentored me. This is not fair. <laughs> uh, no, really, it's, I want to thank Greg and Wendy and Paul and Matt and Ruth and the case. Uh, this, is a, this is really a, a thrill for me uh, because I think of myself just as a storyteller, really, and a journalist going out there just chronicling the work that other people do uh, that are changing the world. And sometimes someone says, well, well here you get uh, this, this honor. And so it's a bit surprising and, and really uh, delightful. Um, I've been thinking uh, what, you know, looking back, thinking that this is a, an award that looks at the field of social entrepreneurship, I was thinking really how the, how the field has changed over the past 20 years or 25 years, and really what's ahead and how society is changing. And, and I think the role that social entrepreneurship will play really changing America. Um, so, I just want to start with a quote that's from Walter Littman. It goes, the way that we imagine the world determines in large part what we do. And the way that we imagine the world is really largely affected by the information that we get in about what the world is like. And, and by and large, that's affected by the media, by the, te the TV networks historically and the newspapers, and now increasingly the blogosphere and the internet. And by and large, that information looks at the world through the frame of problems, all the problems we have. And if you, anybody in this room, if I gave you a minute and asked you to list 10 problems that are afflicting American society or the world, you would be able to finish in under 60 seconds. But if I said, what are 10 really promising solutions? What are the strengths that are there? Um, and I gave you a week, you might have trouble coming up with it. And that, really, in some sense, is really what's out of whack, because you know, anybody here is a parent, if you know that you criticize your child all the time, but you don't encourage their strengths and you don't point out their strengths and allow those to grow, then you really have uh, a child that's not very happy or very competent. And in some sense, we've done that uh, to ourselves in the storytelling uh, as a nation. Uh, and so there is this kind of malaise, I think, that, that um, afflicts us. And it's one of the reasons why all the presidential can candidates this year have said, we need a change, we need a change, we need a change. Um, and in fact, there are, this, there are ample stories out there that, in fact, show that change is already occurring. And in fact, it's occurring below the radar. It's very powerful. And there are all sorts of hidden opportunities for people, very practical career opportunities, ways of seeing things, ways of reframing 
uh, understandings that not only would create a lot of enthusiasm and energy, but would really help people navigate the world. So just to put this in historical perspective, I want to get, tell the story of a man I recently interviewed uh, named Gary White. So, and the reason why his story is interesting is because he, his story really captures what has happened in the past 25 years globally in terms of how we solve major social problems. So Gary White is the founder of an organization called Water Partners, and he got into the business so early that his organization's URL is water.org. So, okay? So, and as he tells the story, he's an engineer, and he grew up in the Midwest in Kansas, and, you know, he was very, you know, motivated. He was uh, to solve the world in a kind of missionary approach. And when he was 20 years old studying engineering, he went, he went to Guatemala, and was horrified to see all of these children dying from waterborne diseases. 80% of children under the age of five, still in the world today who die, die because the water isn't pure. Uh, so he was an engineer and he thought, well, this is not a serious problem. You just have to drop a well and provide the villagers with a clean water source. So that's what he did. He dropped a couple of wells while he was in Guatemala. And then later on, every summer, every time he had a break in his studies, he went to another part of the developing world and he dropped wells. Then he got to the point where he realized that, boy, we're going to have to drop a lot of wells. How am I going to do this? I better become a pilot so that I can fly places and get there much more quickly. And he started, think of the thinking, think of the level of thinking. He wanted to change the world single-handedly. So he actually studied to become a pilot. He, he, uh, he never completed it uh, because he ended up working, uh, getting a job with the Catholic Release Services. And they said, can you run our water program? Now, this is all happening in the early 80s. This is where the story begins, in the early 80s. So it's really 25 years ago that it begins. So he was very excited, and he started traveling all around Latin America as head of the water program for Catholic Relief Services and looking at all of the wells that had been sunk over the previous 10 years. And he was really dismayed to see that more than half of them, within a span of five years, had already broken down. The wells just weren't working. So then he did a larger study and he inquired in other organizations to see what was happening. And he found that actually the best estimate he could come up with globally in the 80s was that 50% of all the water projects in the world uh, had collapsed, had broken down for, some, for one reason or another. And he was describing this to me and, I, and he, he, he said, you know, it's not just a water, it's not just a well breaking down and nobody fixing it. It's the belief in the possibility of change that breaks down when this happens in a village, when somebody comes in, all of this excitement happens, and then there's a big disappointment. And so when he started looking at these water projects and seeing why they failed, it was pretty obvious. He said, very often the well would be sunk, and then it would break, and nobody knew how to fix it. Or they didn't have a budget to fix it, or there were no supply chains, or the, or the villagers hadn't gone through a basic training program to understand that the deep importance of having uh, a working well. So he started looking at these programs, and he, and, he, and he flipped over his approach. He said, well, let's see where the water projects around the world are working, not the broken ones. And he did a study on that, and he found that there were always the same uh, ingredients every time a water program was working. And basically, there was a local group of entrepreneurial individuals, people who had started some sort of organization to manage the well. They, they thought that they needed a revenue source, so they created some sort of a fee system. They knew that they needed a supply chain, so they made sure that they could fix the well. And they had all the you know, various meetings in the at the village level to educate people so that people really understood the importance of this. And wherever this was happening, the water projects repaired themselves. And so he realized that basically he had to, the, the answer to the world's water problem was in 
looking at the, this model and supporting it. So he shifted, and this is over a 20-year period, the water partner's approach to becoming basically a banker for programs like this. So their main product now is what they call water credit. And they've gotten a lot of funding from the Gates Foundation and lots of big foundations because it's been proven to be very effective. So now he goes around the world and looks for these great entrepreneurial organizations, village-based organizations, and makes sure that if they're doing it in one village or three, they can go and do it in 10 if necessary, or 20 or 100. And through this spreading approach, which when you think about it is the natural way that businesses grow, you always find something that's working and then you let them go to three sites and then five sites and, and spread this way, that in fact, they have a model that's scalable, that's sustainable, that's working, and that doesn't break down all the time for the same reasons. So this is the world's water problem seen in the very short span of 25 years. If we think about the water problem, it's, it's, the, it's the oldest health problem in the world. It's been around since before recorded history. And only probably in the last five years have we really figured out how to solve it around the world. We've just, we've just gotten the knowledge now through this, this, this new understanding of how to actually solve problems. Now, if we take the insights that Gary came up with over the last 25 years and we apply them to, say, public programs in the United States, you very quickly can see why over the last 45 years we've been trying to solve the same social problems since the war on poverty and we, we feel that we can't solve them or we haven't solved them and it's made us polarized politically of people who say they're not even worth trying to solve them through government so don't even bother putting any money into that pot and other people uh, getting very angry from, other approach, from, from the other side. And in fact, the problem isn't whether the government can work or whether the private sector has to do everything. The, the problem has been that we actually didn't understand this mechanism that Gary recognized uh, in his research around the world, which is that anytime you want to solve a problem, you need to find problem solvers, people who have self-selected as problem solvers, who have shown that they can solve problems, who are good at it, who want to do it more than they want to argue about why the problem is not being solved, and if you go to the blogosphere, you'll see that there's a lot of people who just want to argue about why the problem's not being solved. They, that's what you know, floats their boat. But the problem solvers actually want to solve the problem. And if you identify these people around society, and you provide them with resources and all sorts of things that increase their capacity, very quickly you'll see a lot of problems being solved, very, very quickly. And when I, when I, when I see the, the lens, when I see the world through the lens of the social entrepreneurs, who are solving these very serious problems? Like Muhammad Yunus with the Grameen Bank, now lending money to 7 million villagers across Bangladesh, $7 billion. Microfinance has reached 100 million families globally, just a half a billion people being, being served by this business model for, for making small loans available to the poorest people in the world. And in fact, most of that growth, if you look at it, has occurred in the last five or six years. It's a very, very recent phenomenon. Most of the growth has occurred since the election of George Bush. So in fact, it's been a very good period for most of the world, if you think about it. Uh, but we don't often see the world through that lens. And in fact, uh, you know, the, the, um, the emergence of social entrepreneurship around the world has now become something that is not, I wouldn't say is taken for granted, but is recognized that, well, really, you can see, you can see through this lens the process repeated over and over again about how individual problem solvers, when supported, scale up and deal, uh, deal with problems much more effectively than we have in the United States over the last 45 years. So I have a f this crisis of confidence that I feel is very real in the United States, which I could 
if you compare it to putting a man on the moon, we can do it no matter what, great national pride, to we can't solve the fact that we have a million dropouts every year in the United States. We just can't do it. We don't know how to solve that problem. That is, is really where our national psyche has gone over, over one generation. And in fact, the data or the data points or the stories to reverse that crisis of confidence and really create, um, see the world through the solution frame is with us right now. And that's one of the reasons why I feel that storytelling is very important because th that story is not getting out. It's being, it's being blocked by the distribution channels of ideas in our society. So it's important that we all, know, if we know these stories, we do a lot of talking to as many people as we know. So I just want to give a few examples of some of the things that I've come across because I'm working on a new book about social entrepreneurship in the United States and Canada now. And there's definitely some patterns that, you, that, are, that are emerging. And, and it's very, very different from this kind of magical thinking that, that characterized the past 30 or 40 years about a technical fix is all that's needed, just drop a well and the problem is magically solved, to this much more realistic thinking that there's all of these ingredients that have to happen. People really have to be problem solvers and they have to be supported in that way. So one organization that I'm, I'm writing about is called the Acumen Fund. How many people here have ever heard of the Acumen Fund? Okay, so most of you know that the thing that differentiates the Acumen Fund, which is a non-profit venture capital fund that invests in uh, private businesses, in for-profit businesses that provide a series of beneficial things to poor people in the developing world. So they mostly focus on businesses that distribute water, clean water, uh, malaria nets and things like that, housing, they provide credit for, for housing and things like that. And what they have found is that uh, all around the world, there's all of these people who have these promising technologies to solve problems. Uh, um, a better malaria bed net, a better way of distributing water, or a better water filter, or something like that. And historically, we've looked at these, technolo these technologies as the fixes of these problems. And anyone who's spent any time in Bangladesh will bemoan the fact that the Bangladeshi rickshaw drivers you know, look like they're 50 years old when they're 25 years old because of how grueling it is to pedal a rickshaw. So there's all of these ergonomic rickshaws that have been developed by idealistic uh, product designers who have gone to Bangladesh. And there's probably 50 ergonomic rickshaws that have never been marketed and have never seen the light of day because the, the rickshaw cartel <laughs> is a monopoly and they don't, you know, they, they, they have a little mafia there and it's not easy to just come in with a new rickshaw. There's a whole marketing system. And that's what Acumen has seen. If you really want to get malaria bed nets into every household that needs them in Africa, you have to develop a business to do this. You have to understand the price that people are willing to pay. You have to create a market where one doesn't exist. You have to figure out your distribution channels. Um, you have to have local champions. And you have to be able to respond to the changes in the marketplace, to new competition, and all of these things. And in fact, what Jacqueline um, Novogratz, the founder of the Acumen Fund, now says, which I think is a very powerful idea, is that markets are actually the best listening device we have to understand the needs of the poorest three billion people in the world. If we develop market solutions to solve their problems, they'll very quickly tell you that they don't want to pay for it at this price because they're not perceiving any value, or they love the, they love the malaria net but they won't buy it unless, you can, unless it comes in blue because, you know, blue is their favorite color and so forth. And I, I am on the board of an organization called Skojo, and we just we market reading glasses to poor people across India. And we thought that we were geniuses. You know, we'll develop this very 
low-cost reading glass that will be reading set of reading glasses just for people like me who are over the age of 40 and they can't read anymore. So if you're a villager in India and you have presbyopia, which means you can't read up close, um, typically you don't have any reading glasses and you stop doing things. So you stop threading needles if you're a seamstress or you stop sifting seeds uh, and all sorts of productive years are lost just because people don't have the, the kind of reading glasses that you can buy in any pharmacy in the United States for $5. So we decided to, to uh, uh, produce them for under a dollar to sell them to villagers in India. And we found a lot of things. One is that it takes a long time just to build a market for something that is, you think is obviously necessary. The other thing is that when you come in with a $1 pair of reading glasses to a village, um, it, villagers don't always want that. As, as a matter of fact, they want to have a $1 pair of reading glass so that they could buy the pair of reading glasses that sell for $1.25, just so they don't feel that they're getting the cheapest pair of reading glasses. So we have this low-end model, which, you know, which is the cheapest one, which are black. And then there's these other reading glasses that sell for a dollar and a quarter and a dollar fifty, and they have different colors and uh, fake gold and so forth on them, and they're very popular. But all of this took about seven years to figure out. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't obvious that you just come in there with the reading glasses and people just pick them up. You had to de we developed contests, uh, you know, thread the needle contests in villagers where everybody would come and they would have a race to see how quickly they could do it. And all of these things, and this was a real learning process led by the people on the ground in India because nobody was buying the glasses. So this is the kind of thing that the Acumen Fund is funding, and they're, and they're funding many, many business models around the world so that there's a whole series of learnings uh, that are coming from their business models now, mostly in India and in, mostly in South Asia, but also in Africa too. So what, comes, what you see out of that example and many similar examples is kind of a new realization of what markets can do. And in fact, I think if we would characterize um, sort of capitalism, I think it's sort of capitalism 2.0 or something like that. It's a whole, a whole new understanding of the potential of these mechanisms. And, and you know, what's so great is that you're, the, the, the skills and the understandings that you're all getting here at FUCA um, are so applicable. I mean, I've, I speak to so many social entrepreneurs who are working on these problems, and I think, oh, I just wish that they could have had an MBA or have taken a finance course or, or taken a marketing course or spoken to some of these people who are working on these business. Because at some level, the mistakes will continue to be made. But they're not being, thankfully, they're not being made quite as much. And in fact, what Gary White showed over the past 25 years is that, that this is how you have to solve the water problem. Uh, this, is, this is, in fact, where many people are starting today. They're starting with these realizations that we have to have these basic business competencies uh, if we really want to solve problems at a large scale. Um, another big pattern that I'm seeing now is that people are becoming much smarter, social entrepreneurs, about how to actually uh, help people, talented people in the United States and around the world connect with the mainstream economy. And I'll give you a very simple example. There's a, a man named Gerald Chertavian, who's a social entrepreneur, an Ashoka fellow, and he's, uh, he's, he himself was a very successful business person. He, uh, he made uh, millions in uh, starting his own uh, computer company, and he sold out. But he had always loved mentoring as a big brother, uh, low-income, underprivileged youth, and really helping them to to uh, find where they could really use their talents in society. And while he was working, all the years that he was working on Wall Street, he was working uh, for large banks, 
he, would, he had a, big, uh, a younger brother, uh, he was a big brother and this was a little brother, a boy named David, who lived on the Lower East Side of New York. And David was a great artist, but he had grown up without a father and uh, nobody else in his family spoke English. And very, very few, I don't think he knew anyone who had graduated from college before he met Gerald. And through this relationship, Gerald was able to show him options that he had in life. And he eventually went on to have a, an artistic career and worked for Disney, and now he has his own company where he does, uh, he does artwork and he's able to sell it to, to uh, lots of customers. So through this, through this relationship with David, after Gerald sold his company, he, he realized that what he really wanted to do was to go back to the work that has already always turned him on more than anything, which was this big brother work. So he, he was an entrepreneur, he knew how to start a company, but this time he started a non-profit organization, he called it Year Up, because in the course of one year, you can change your life. And what's really interesting, and I won't go into all the details of it, what Year Up does is it takes low-income, uh, sometimes high school graduates, often not high school graduates, uh, but they have to finish their GED during the program, and gets them jobs on Wall Street, usually entry-level jobs in the computer department, a help desk kind of work. The starting salaries tend to be in the range of thirty-five dollars to $45,000, which for these, these youngsters is you know, much higher than what they were earning. Many of them were working at fast food restaurants or they were working as security guards. They were just, you know, nothing wrong with those jobs, but they weren't maximizing their potential. So they come into Europe and they have the six-month program where they have to bring them up to speed to place them as temporary interns into these companies for six months. And then at the end of the year, the company has the option whether to hire them or not. Um, and the companies, incidentally, pay, pay $16,000 for the privilege of having these young people intern there and supporting Europe. And 90% of the graduates of Europe get either are offered jobs by the companies or decide that their better option is to go back to college and get a college degree which is an enormous, enormous success record if you look at vocational programs around the United States. So what are they doing that makes their program so much more successful than the national average? And keep in mind, there's four million people in the United States, 18 to 24, who are in the same situation as, as David uh, was in, underemployed. And I was talking to Gerald about this, and it was very interesting. He we had a little story. The day that I interviewed him, uh, I, I was coming late to the interview. I was delayed on the subway, and I called him to tell him I'd be 15 minutes late. We get into the interview and, and I start asking, what's the secret to Europe? What are the things that you're doing that really account for your success? And he said, he said, just what you just did. I said, what? He said, you knew you were gonna be late, so you called ahead and you told me. I said, where did you learn that? I said, I don't know, I, I don't know where I learned that. Where do we learn that you're supposed to call ahead if you're gonna be 15 minutes late? I said, I, I don't, I grew up with it, you know? He said, exactly. All of these kids grew up in a culture and there's all of these things that they have to learn that will make them work in a business environment. He gave me another example. He said, you're looking right at me when I'm speaking. If I, you're, I know that you're paying attention to me because you're looking in my eyes. He said, if, if, we, if we do a class and I'm, in a comp I'm a company trainer and you're sitting in the class, I know you'll be watching me, following me with your eyes. He said, if you grow up in, in the Bronx or in uh, you know, East Harlem or something like that, you're not gonna look at people in the eyes. It's, it's threatening to look at people in the eyes. You've been taught since you were a little kid, you avoid eye contact because eye contact is threatening. Don't do that. So all of a sudden you come into a whole different culture where eye con not making eye contact is seen as disrespectful from a culture where making eye contact was seen as threatening. He says there's, there's thousands of little details like this that make it possible for someone to succeed in a business environment. How to shake someone's hand how to make small talk at the Christmas party, and all of these details. 
He says, we focus a lot on that. We still teach them some basic skills, computers and all that, but we make sure that they feel comfortable in this culture. And I thought, he, Gerald is doing for these young kids the same thing that my translators did for me when I was in Bangladesh. You know, they would say, you eat the food. Don't, you know. When I was already full and I was visiting a villager and they would offer me a plate of food, which was, a, a, you know, something that was a, a big offering for them in terms of what their means, um, you, you don't turn down food if you're in South Asia because it's, it's, it's humiliating for, for the person you're with. Um, now, I had to learn that the hard way by, by being pointed out by my translators telling me that that's inappropriate. Um, so, but these little details that, that can cause people to be rejected by systems and constantly cause people to be rejected by systems um, are what they're working on. And so they have this 90% success rate. And now Gerald has decided, we can do this with thousands of people. This is not rocket science. We could franchise this. You know, we could, we could just do a Subway fr franchise of Europe and we'll be reaching out to more people. So he, he has structured um, the equivalent of a private placement document, which is, which is what everybody in banking knows is how you... You know, you move from one stage of growth to another. You raise $18 million in capital immediately. You don't ask for a grant this year and a grant next year, and hopefully we'll get the budget to zero. You actually plan a growth plan. And he's brought this, these financial tools from, that, you know, that from his own business experience and, and working in banks, and he's applying them to growing year up. And he's got this um, tremendous momentum behind him. And, and I expect if we look at year up five years from now, this organization will be... 20, 25, 30 cities will be reaching tens of thousands of young people, and its model will have, effect, will have uh, influenced many other uh, job uh, placement programs around the country. And the last story I'm going to tell is, um, is a bit more uh, on the soft side of things. I mean, in social entrepreneurship, you know, it often gets lumped into the sort of semi-business category. Uh, but in fact, there, I think one of the big jobs that social entrepreneurs are going to have for them over the coming uh, decade are really humanizing all the horrible bureaucracies we have in the United States and Canada. One of the differences between the social entrepreneurs in, in Bangladesh and India is that very often they're creating whole new sets of institutions because the state hasn't created them. Um, but in the United States, where we have 80,000 public schools, we have thousands of hospitals and foster care programs and prison systems, the, the entrepreneurs are increasingly going to be working within systems and changing those systems to make them, you know, really much more effective than they currently are. So I'll give you one example. There's an organization in the United States called Sports for Kids, which uh, works with public schools to improve the quality of recess. Okay, now this might not seem like a big thing. How many people here really liked recess when you were going to school? Raise your hand if you, if you loved recess. Okay. So how many people here have ever played the game Foursquare at recess? Okay, Foursquare. Dodgeball? Okay. So kids today in a, in a third of the schools in the United States don't have recess. You know, Atlanta schools, Chicago schools, Baltimore schools, no recess. And it's a really, you know, to me it's, a, it's, you know, it's like going back to, to Charles Dickens and hard times and Thomas Gradgrind, you know, it's like, you know, logic is all that matters. So you think, well, why have they done away with recess in all these schools? Now, all of the people, incidentally, who study play um, with animals, they show if you deprive animals of play, they, they get wolves will get rejected from the pack. Um, children, they think that play is the, the fundamental socialization experience that children have. It's where they learn how to self-govern. 
how, how to um, understand the nuances and quick interactions and all sorts of things. Um, so that has been taken away from a lot of kids. And if, if you go to principals, principals who have taken away recess bemoan the fact that they have taken away recess. They don't feel good about it. Nobody feels good about this except for one or two crazy superintendents. Everybody is against this. But why have they done it? They've done it because recess is ungovernable, because these kids, young kids today, have had so few opportunities to play that they actually don't know how to play. They actually fight all the time. And, and this is such a problem that in, in the schools that haven't gotten rid of recess, because some states mandate recess because of mothers who have gone and petitioned the, the states and said, you can't get rid of recess. So there's a mandate for recess. And in these states, what they have are massive levels of suspensions of five and six and seven-year-old children because they have zero tolerance policies on the playground. So imagine a six-year-old being sent home from school for fighting. This is what's happening thousands of times in the country. You think about this, this is, so this is crazy, right? This is, this is, this is what's happening in public education. So what, these kids are not, um, are fighting because they don't have the skills to get a game going and keep a game going, which are the skills that all play requires. You have to be able to get, figure out everybody gets the rules, you know, Red, blue, red, blue, these are the teams. However you, you organize it, you've got to get the thing going. And so what Sports for Kids does is they've taken a different approach to the recess problem. They said instead of banning recess, let's actually use the playground to make it the best resource in the school. The, one, the place where if you teach the kids to play, you will actually make this um, what was a very negative, threatening experience. The playground was the reason why kids said they were sick mommy because someone's bullying them on the playground. Instead, you turn it to the reason that they want to go to school, which is why I wanted to go to school. We love recess. So, so what do they do? They've created a core of what you call play educators. You could think of them as the play core instead of the peace core. The effect is the same. And they actually go into schools and they're armed with this curriculum of hundreds of games and a whole set of methodologies about how to teach children how to play. And I'll give you one simple methodology. Rock, paper, scissors. Does everybody know rock, paper, scissors? Who doesn't know rock, paper, scissors? Raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so the kids learn rock, paper, scissors. And this is sort of a crazy thing to say, but the effect transforms playgrounds when they learn rock, paper, scissors. Because what happens is every single argument which used to cause a game to collapse is now solved because the kids have a methodology that they agree to. And so fighting plummets, suspensions plummets, Kids start saying things like, nice try to each other. The stuff that, you know, you speak to the teachers and they're astonished. They've never heard a kid say, nice try to another kid. The whole culture changes. And this approach now has been systematized in 130 schools. Um, there's, it's going to be in uh, probably five times that number or maybe ten times that number over the next five or six years. But ultimately, it's really going to transform what is the biggest, one of the biggest headaches, probably one of the top three headaches for principals today in the United States which is recess, into one of the big assets. Because what happens in these schools is that when the kids are positively engaged on the playground, they actually learn better. They feel more relaxed. They feel safer in the classroom. And they can concentrate. And I'll just give you one story of, that Jill related to me recently. She got, um, she got a call from a teacher in Palo Alto, a principal of a school where Sports for Kids had just started working a month earlier. And she's always, you know, she's very customer sensitive. She always says, how's it working? The schools, incidentally, pay $25,000 for the program, so they really want to make sure that it's working. That's a, that's a lot of money for a, for a low-income public school. Um, 
And the teacher said, well, I know that Sports for Kids is working. And, and Jill said, how do you know? She said, well, we used to have to put, uh, we used to have to guard the bathrooms during lunch and recess because kids always vandalize the toilets. But now they don't do it anymore. And she said, why? And, and the teacher said, and the principal said, because they're playing. <laughs> they're not interested in vandalizing the toilets. They're doing something that's more fun. They're, they're playing dodgeball or kickball or something. And I, I thought about that and I thought, could that be a metaphor for the entire prison system in this country? You know, I mean, do we, how many people do we keep guarded? How many guards do we have because people are being prevented from doing something that's naturally fun and is in line with their motivation and so forth? Just a thought. So, so these are three examples of the kinds of things that social entrepreneurs are working on in the United States and Canada. There's, you know, there's, you know, all across the health system, the education system, foster care, uh, clean technology. You, you, the experimentation is really just thrilling. And if you can picture from these three stories, 3,000 stories, or maybe 30,000 stories that have the same sort of DNA to them, problem-solving methodology, people uh, really deeply committed to solving these problems, people having a lot of fun, really a lot of joy in the creation of solutions and in the fact that they know that they're really making a contribution to society that makes them feel very good about it. And, you know, I think, just to sum up, I think, you know, there really is a big opportunity today, not just to at the individual level to have careers in this field of social entrepreneurship or to potentially to be entrepreneurs using your skills to transform the way institutions operate, public institutions or businesses. Um, but I think that collectively the field of social entrepreneurship really has the, um, the storytelling capability to change the narrative that has dominated um, the United States, I think probably for the, for the past generation, this narrative that we really haven't and perhaps we can't solve our fundamental social problems to there's a whole bunch of places where we're solving these problems and there's a role for government, a new role for government in supporting this. There's a new role for the private sector. We have to wake up philanthropy so that they can really be spending their money much more effectively than, than they are currently. And of course we have to let people know that there's this whole array of career opportunities and options on the menu that they're currently not seeing. You know, ultimately, this, this, what social entrepreneurship offers and what I think uh, at, at the deepest level, at the heart level, is it really allows people to be fully expressed, fully expressed human beings, taking their talents, their interests, and working with a community of colleagues uh, and turning each other on every day by doing something that, that um, really, uh, you know, is really beautiful. And I'm, I'm hoping that these stories help some of you and people who hear them to reimagine re the world in a way that also excites you and releases uh, your energy and, and helps you to pursue some of, some of your dreams. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you again for this great honor and, uh, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. I think they're taping, so. Oh. Yeah. Hello. Hi. <laughs> I'm in Greg's class right now, Advanced Social Entrepreneurship, and something that we talk about a lot is solving problems from 
a focused approach versus a more multi-prong approach. And I wanted to get your thoughts on specifically for the example with Sports for Kids coming in and focusing just on the recess. And I know it has implications in the classroom, but what are your thoughts on looking at other areas at the same time, teachers, um, <coughs> in areas like that as well? Or, or can you know, just focusing with one program be enough to really make change? I, I think, you know, if you look at a lot of very, I mean, there's, there's probably examples on both sides, but there's a lot of businesses that really just, you know, we do chicken well kind of businesses. Um, and they become the best at what they do, and they're the market, you know, they don't, haven't even come close to reaching the market at what they do better than any organization. Um, I think that there's really uh, a lot of room for organizations that are, are single-focused and just do that really, really well. Uh, you know, I mean, Sports for Kids in the future, they, they will have a major advocacy component because this is something that really has to be supported publicly. And they'll also have a major training component because, you know, the idea of them reaching all the public schools doesn't make sense. You, you should really be having many, many organizations working with public schools. I think probably they will spin off other product lines. I mean, they haven't gotten into after school. You know, they have their core competencies and they've spun off a whole series of other products that still tap their core competencies and, and you know, things that they do very, very well. So I think really the, the thing that should, should drive that is really what your group of people are very motivated to do and what they're very, very good at already. And if you can add on things, uh, I think it makes sense. Uh, you mentioned uh, about problem solvers. Um, how do you see problem uh, solutions coming from the down, like from the grassroots level, from the villages themselves? How can markets adopt those and help them propagate those solutions? You know, I was thinking before, one of the other things I was going to do this talk about was was just your on the line of your question. So. Um, so my first book was about the Grameen Bank and microcredit. And the basic idea of microcredit is that everybody in the world has entrepreneurial ability. They can start something, they can run a business. And Muhammad Yunus has this, uh, this analogy that he uses. He says a, a, a per, human being is like the seed of a bonsai tree. Uh, the bonsai tree only grows this high uh, because it's in a small pot. But if you took that same seed and put it in a field, it would grow to a normal size. So the seed is the same, the seed is the person, but the pot is different. Um, so that's, 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 you know, he said microcredit is trying to change the size of the pot so they can grow into full size and showing the, the ability that's there that has never been recognized. Social entrepreneurship is about the relationship of the individual to society, that one person can in fact change society. So I think your question really gets to the idea of micro-social entrepreneurship if we sort of put these ideas together. And micro-social entrepreneurship is really the idea that says anybody in the world has the capacity to change their environment. Um, it's a question, you know, in a sense, or it's an affirmation of that. So I think that that really is, is, is a reality if certain conditions are met. And, and it's interesting because Ashoka, which, which is the subject of my second book, one of the stories I tell, has changed their, uh, has created a new tagline which they call, which they use the phrase, everyone a change maker meaning that the goal of social entrepreneurship is to create a, a, a culture around the world where everybody who sees these examples of people causing change can be inspired to bring a change at whatever level they feel that they want to. That might mean changing their family or changing their relationship or changing their school in the case of a young person or something like that. I, I think that, that it's very possible. I, I think certain 
you know, confidence has to be developed. Uh, certain skills are, are required to work with other people. You have to have empathy. You have to know how to work with a team. But I think anyone in the world who has a few basic skills, um, and of course, you know, is not starving, you know, which is, which is a big problem for a lot of people, I think, you know, could, could probably cause more change than we currently see. One of the things that the Grameen Bank has shown, which is amazing, is the number of people out of the Grameen Bank and Brock who have actually gone on to run for political office, who started off as borrowers and now are running, you know, 20% of all the local political offices in Bangladesh come from the Grameen Bank or BRAC's uh, membership, which is very dramatic. And these are all women, by the way. So I, I, think, I think it's very real. Um, you uh, talked a lot that or at least we hear a lot about social entrepreneurship here in the United States and in Western countries and in a lot of the places that it seems like the West cares about, Africa, India, some of the South Asia. I was wondering, um, have you heard much about what's going on in some of the larger emerging markets like Russia and China, places where also they have what you talked about earlier in the United States, we have a large bureaucracy, they have a very large bureaucracy there. Um, much as we have here, the state takes care of some things the state has traditionally taken care of an awful lot there just because of the history of communism in, in China, of course, the continuing Communist Party. Have you heard a lot about anything that's going on there? Are the same strategies working or are they using different strategies? I'm just curious about that yeah. area. So I, don't, I know very little about Russia. I haven't been there. I did have the opportunity to go to China. My book was, came out in Chinese and we had some conferences on social entrepreneurship. They were actually the first public conferences on social entrepreneurship in China. Uh, incidentally, my book had been refused, was, was cancelled by two previous publishers. It was the third one uh, that went through with it, and they were reprimanded by, by the party for publishing the book, I was told. So it's, you know, it, it does make some statements that the government isn't the sole legitimate agents of change in society, and which, is, which is a challenge. Um, but the social entrepreneurs in China are there. They have to be governmentally sanctioned. They have a term for basically a governmentally sanctioned NGO. Um, and most of them who are working with, uh, with relative degrees of freedom are working in the environmental space on problems that pretty much everybody agrees upon and are not really heavily political. They're not working, oh, the ones who are working openly on things or, or they're working on problems like AIDS and health issues that the government prefers to keep hidden have to be much more, um, they just have to be much more tactful in the way that they operate and, and below the radar. Um, and in some sense, this mirrors what happened in, in, in uh, Eastern Europe before the wall. I mean, you know, many of the social entrepreneurs that I interviewed when I was in Hungary and Poland really got their, cut their teeth in the environmental movement. That's where they had degrees of freedom. And so people naturally go to where there are degrees of freedom and where the, the incentives are structured so that they can be effective. Um, and I think that's where a lot of, that will be the sort of the, um, the breeding ground for a lot of the future of entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship in China. I don't know about Russia. And then, and then your next one. My name is Wayne Mayer, and I'm an alumni from the Nicholas School of the Environment, and previously worked as a, a journalist. And I wanted to say kudos for both of the books. They're very well written, and they, they bring what I think many social entrepreneurs have trouble articulating to the forefront through powerful narratives. So I wanted to say thank you for that. I also wanted to ask you about uh, the connections that maybe you're seeing in social entrepreneurship in the United States in the environmental movement as it's connecting to some of the other social problems that you mentioned, such as education, 
uh, inner city poverty and the like? Are you, are you seeing some connectivity? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, check out the work of Van Jones and, um, and the Ella Baker Center. I mean, the, the call for sort of green jobs, uh, where they mirror, you know, uh, economic they merge economic development and basically clean tech or the need for, you know, I mean, basically the whole country has to be retrofitted, right? It's not a small job. Massive amounts of, of work tightening the envelope on, envelope on every single building, you know, around the country. There's all sorts of, of new companies that are springing up, uh, saving energy, saving water, and so forth. So it's just a, it's just a, natural, a natural fusion. And globally, you know, you've seen that almost every social entrepreneur in the developing world that's working on an environmental issue is also working on um, an economic development issue at the same time. I mean, they twin this almost all the time globally. You can't upend people's livelihood by saying, you know, no more, you know, no more plowing the grassland because it's terrible for the environment or no more chopping down the Atlantic rainforest and not have an alternative economic development strategy. So people almost always... Uh, have are focused on the, on those two challenges simultaneously, and you see it in the United States. I think the green jobs movement ha is is just you know a lot of people it's it's it are, are putting their resources behind it and really trying to trying to figure out what this means for inner city development and uh, and I think it will it will have a lot of traction in the coming years. Um, in your reporting, have you noticed any themes as far as how successful social entrepreneurs overcome obstacles? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's really a process that, that uh, is kind of iterative learning, I guess, is how you, how you can see it. Um, you know, where, where people try things and develop feedback loops very, very quickly. Um, and they really monitor how it's going very quickly. So there's not, you know, there, it's actually an interesting thing. There, there's, there's been a series of research studies that, that were done on school teachers around the country that apply to social entrepreneurs. Uh, so one of them showed that um, all successful school teachers who, are, who outperform what's expected do the same things, and the unsuccessful teachers don't do those two things. And they're basically two basic behaviors, and one of them is to praise uh, steps forward rather than to punish steps backward. And the other one is to um, monitor and, and have close connection with the class, so that they really know if people are learning. So they don't do a lecture for an hour and then see if it's sunk in. They, they're constantly checking in with the students to see if understanding is there, so they can constantly adjust as they go. And in some sense, I've seen the social entrepreneurs do the exact same thing. They, you know, rather than writing an op-ed um, protesting or complaining about what a company is doing, they're much more likely to call up the CEO and say, can we discuss this, and to see if there's a way that behavior can shift. Not, not that there's not a role for activism, but it's just, it seems to be a, a temperamental choice that people make, um, a sense that you can actually change people's minds. Um, but then the idea of, you know, working, um, you know, building, an, building from, the, from the ground up and constantly iterating, you know, having all of these failures as you go, constantly getting the information as you're going so that, you know, by the time you're at a certain scale, you've made 80% of the mistakes you're going to make. You're still going to make some more mistakes, but... You're not going to make earth-shattering mistakes that completely undercut. And if you look at what the World Bank does, with take the deep tube well example in Bangladesh, which is one of the biggest fiascos of all time, is they'll sink you know, 20,000 wells at $10,000 a shot across the country and then discover that the management is too complicated to operate at the village level. Whereas you know, 
the Grameen Bank would sink two wells in two different parts of the country, see how they're going, and then if it works, they would do four, and, and so there's just a kind of natural growth process, I think, a, a kind of the way a tree grows that I think is very different from the way governments typically operate. And the last thing is, is I've seen, you know, when I decide to write about someone now, I have a very simple rule. I just look at how many really talented people who have other options decided to work with them. And it almost always is a, is a big indicator of something special. I don't know if this is, I guess it's working now. Oh, um, I, I noticed when you spoke about a lot of the third world projects, they were mostly money driven and uh, entrepreneurial. And when you spoke about some of the US projects uh, that were in the schools, they were more behaviorally driven and there didn't seem to be, except for the, maybe the people that started it, that much of a, of a money driven part of the entrepreneurship. And we see these teachers getting either rewarded or punished for their, their kids making grades and so on. And I wondered if, you had looked at integrating, or if any of the models looked at integrating the kind of monetary incentives with, it's, it's kind of hard to measure, you know, the success of recess and, well, if they didn't blow up all the toilets this week, they get $100. Is, is there any place where those two pieces have come together the same way that they've uh, rewarded and punished schools for not making the grade, if you will? And the corollary question is, what, what do you think about all those uh, units of measure to, um, make the grade and, and pay people for doing it? I, there are lots of social entrepreneurs that use various incentives. Uh, there's no real rule of thumb. I mean, some people use financial incentives. Some people feel that, as a matter of principle, people should be paid for everything that they do. And then, and then other people feel that um, the greatest incentives are the natural incentive that people have to, to do excellent work if they're really in touch with themselves and and... They, they feel they can do it. You know, part of the biggest problems of change, changing behavior are, one, um, people don't know if it's, it's worth the effort to change, and they don't really know if they can actually do the things that are being asked of them on the other side of the change. I think that if people focus, I, I don't, I, I, I think that there's probably a lot more change that can happen without monetary incentives than people often uh, think about. I mean, there's, there, there have been studies on the, on the economic incentives to sort of prevent uh, uh, adolescent uh, pregnancies and so forth like that. And they've been shown that there's all sorts of other approaches like uh, home visits and so forth by nurses and so forth, by nurses uh, in the case of, uh, that's, that's more of a prenatal thing, uh, but in terms of educational programs in schools and so forth, the Sisterhood Agenda program, uh, which has been very effective in terms of educating people to value themselves and to see that there's lots of other ways they can have a sense of achievement in, in having a, a child at an early age. And it turns out that those are more effective than either penalizing someone economically or encouraging a certain kind of behavior through a tax incentive or a, a tax credit incentive or something. So, so I think that the behavior change approach um, that recognizes that most people really want to feel good about themselves, they want to make a contribution, they want to do excellent work, if they, un if, if they can get by all of the things that are preventing them to do it, I think is ultimately the deepest, the deepest incentive. Uh, I feel like if I were to ask six different individuals for a definition of social entrepreneurship, I might get somewhere between three or four different uh, answers. Um, I was wondering if uh, you felt like there was a sense in the field that it was moving towards uh, more of a cohesive uh, definition and related to that, I was wondering if there are any thought leaders out there that might potentially scare you, uh, promoting 
uh, any sort of concept or idea of what social entrepreneurship is that might be opposing to what you feel it is? So, I mean, there's not really a consensus on what an entrepreneur is in business, right? If you ask five people what an entrepreneur is, you'll get, you know, somebody who opens a cigar shop up to, you know, Bill Gates. Um, and I think what you'll probably see with social entrepreneurship is that, you know, people want to identify with social entrepreneurship as it becomes a respected career. Just like people want to call themselves entrepreneurs, everybody in the United States, you know, will say, I want to be an entrepreneur. Why? Because there's so many positive attributes associated with it. It's, there's books about it. There's, you know, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of status associated with, with doing that. I think social entrepreneur people are going to be attached to, attracted to for the same reasons. And so um, I, I think, you know, I would probably hold to the, the definition I would use of an entrepreneur as being one, the, the sort of the classic say definition of increasing the yield on resources, of having a more transformative use of resources, reframing problems and so forth, innovation. Um, but I don't think that in any way there's going to be a consensus on this. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it will go the way of business entrepreneurship. Um, the people who scare me, I mean, I, I, I think um, there, there, there's, I guess there are some people who sort of really want to, don't, don't want to call anything entrepreneurship unless it's for profit or unless it's sort of really looks like a business and has, you know, classic revenues through fees and all that. And I just think it's very, I think the, the, the negative of that is that it, it will actually, you know, when you, when you narrow something, you actually um, cause people to be less creative because they're not seeing all the other options. So you, you say, you know, if you want to be a social entrepreneur, you have to have a revenue for service thing. And there's just all sorts of things that have to happen in the world where you, where you won't be able to capture revenues necessarily in, in the way that a business capture revenues. Or where the payer and the, the person who's being served are two different people, and the revenue model doesn't make sense in a classical business thinking model. So I think, um, I think you know, I, I'm in favor of sort of I'd like to see more social entrepreneurs coming out of the medical schools, out of the public policy schools, out of urban planning. I think in any field, people can see alternative pathways for what they know. And actually, it's in the cross-sections of some of these fields, you know, getting business people and health folks together, getting educators together with urban planners. I mean, if you look at the problem of asthma in the United States, it's, an, it's a school-based problem. You have to, it's an after-school problem. It's a housing problem because of the allergies. It's a health issue, of course, that gets treated in the emergency room. It's a parenting problem, educating parents. There's so many dimensions of if you really want to prevent kids from having asthma attacks, you can't just approach it in anyone, from any one silo. And I think more and more social entrepreneurs um, come at things with a more rounded approach. They realize that there's many things that have to happen at the same time, many kinds of knowledge that will help them to solve problems. So, so to the degree that they come from different schools, it's great. Uh, they end up creating teams of people who come from all those different schools if they, if they don't come from the schools themselves. Uh, and so that's often how the, the integration function happens. Are we uh, ready to wrap? Okay, okay. okay. The moment, okay, okay. And the, and the, and the envelope? <laughs> you already won. Okay. So anyway, David, on behalf of Case and the Fuqua School of Business and Duke University, we want to really recognize your extraordinary ability to bring social entrepreneurship to life for millions of people around the world and in so doing, inspire untold numbers of people to go out and solve, attack, <laughs> pursue social problems in creative ways. Yeah. Thank right. you so much. Thank you. Mm.